Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, how the United States and the European Union are deepening their cybersecurity uh, cooperation. But first, joining us is Andrea Schaumann, the Director of Federal Programs and Partnerships at Fortress Information Security. Andrea, always great to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, a word uh, from our sponsors before we get underway. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. I wanted to get your take uh, on uh, the uh, clause in the National Defense Authorization Act that Congress is debating right now as part of the Biden administration's uh, defense spending uh, uh, measure uh, that would improve public-private uh, partnership. Uh, and we've been talking about this on virtually every program since we began the cyber report uh, and the importance of, of uh, doing that. We've heard from Admiral uh, Mike Rogers, uh, who joined us last week, uh, talking about the importance of public-private partnership. For, from, from your perspective, talk to us a little bit about the legislation and where it's trying to go and whether it's on the mark and trying to get us there. Yeah, for sure. So this is this is really exciting to think about the scope and the potential here. Um, what they're trying to do is, uh, it sounds like, establish a cross-functional team. So bringing leaders from different divisions like Homeland Security and the DOD together at the table to start making these decisions. Uh, we're all really aware of the complexity of, of the risk. And so it only makes sense to bring folks in who have different viewpoints and different priorities to start talking about proactive work, how to uh, make things safer for everyone, especially leveraging um, data and resources and access so that way um, the either private or public organizations that don't have as much access to those things can still benefit and um, still shore up those weaker links so that they're not creating vulnerabilities um, for the entire ecosystem and, and vulnerabilities that could have a really broad reaching impact. Um, uh, Jim Langevin, uh, who is uh, the outgoing uh, chairman who oversees cyber and was an important part of the Cyberspace Solarium uh, Commission is one of the people uh, who uh, is driving uh, this uh, legislation. You know, we, we don't have a lot of exper uh, examples of what right is. What, what, what does right look like in the balance in this relationship, right? Because ultimately, there is a little bit of skepticism Right, private companies, uh, for example, will have like, well, you know, concerns about the government being in our networks. Uh, it, what's interesting to me is whenever anything happens, they really do want the government to be in their networks, right. uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, you and I have talked about that before. What, mm -hmm. what does right look like in terms of getting this relationship right? Well, I'm glad that you brought up the Cyber Solarium Commission because this absolutely reinforces their goal of, you know, layered cyber deterrence and staying agile and proactive um, when they when we're addressing all these threats. So this is definitely why Fortress is a huge supporter of um, Cyber Solarium 2.0. And when you start thinking about what a successful public and private partnership looks like, um, it's important to evaluate it in real time and understanding you know, things uh, like very particular and granular contracts and that protracted sort of government contracting process can sometimes restrict um, outcomes and it can cause delays. So, you know, having really clear goals and then enforcement of those terms is going to improve the chances of success for everybody. But it's also really important to maintain those partnerships and relationships the way the commercial sector does it, you know, making sure that there's an emphasis on partnership and that that's just as important as meeting goals and deadlines and, you know, making sure that everybody's buying in and, and really, um, you know, pushing their shoulder against the sled together. 
um, in order to in, reaffirm that collaborative environment. You wanna have a really high trust environment where everybody is incentivized and motivated to share um, and be collaborative in order to reduce risk versus you know, isolating folks so that they have their own individual priorities or deadlines or, or competing deadlines. Um, uh, you, you guys are a threat intelligence firm, so you have sort of one leg in the public side of this uh, equation and another leg, obviously, in the private uh, mm -hmm. side uh, of, of this. Um, what are the particular pitfalls to that, that, each, that both sides have to be cognizant of, right? Um, because um, ultimately, you know, as you said, right, I mean, success, success happens when there is a lot of trust in the relationship, right. mm -hmm. um, even though I think that there should be more trust than I think there is. I'm not sure why this is as much of a problem. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, from your perspective, what are, what are the things that both sides of this equation have to be cognizant of so that we get it right? Um, I think understanding that, that everyone is coming to the table um, with similar goals. Like I said, safety and security is the primary mission of, of um, agreements like this. But then understanding that different agencies, uh, public and private, are dealing with different constraints and competing priorities. And so when you look at the way that capital, you know, money is flowing, there are different rules and the regulatory environment is so different from the public and private sector. Um, also, you know, just understanding the way uh, they're allowed to procure or contracting and those sorts of things. But it's also really exciting to think about leveraging the scope um, that the government has access to. So, you know, data that would otherwise be inaccessible to the private sector or um, techniques and lessons learned from both sides of the table. So it's not just about talking about the successes and the wins, but really feeling comfortable talking about approaches that maybe didn't work or could have improved. And, you know, if only we had had access to X, this would have gone a lot better. And staying nimble and staying open um, in a collaborative environment so, you know, anytime anything is siloed strictly within the government or the commercial sector, it's going to create uh, some blind spots. So this creates the opportunity um, for data sharing and also eliminating redundancies, which overall saves money, it saves time, and it provides strengths in numbers. Um, do, um, you know, we, um, we've been talking about uh, on, this, on this program um, that crisis has been a, a good thing. In that, it, right? I mean, all the breaches we've seen from solar winds to, uh, you know, the Microsoft intrusions by the Chinese, and then obviously the shields up threat uh, of the Russians uh, conducting operations against uh, the United States and its allies, right? I mean, we, we people have been trying to defend and they're on the parapets, uh, which is which is good. Uh, but the thing is, eventually people get tired. Um, and um, you know, waiting for a crisis is not necessarily, you know, it, it can help, but it's not, it's been a little bit too much of our strategy. How do we oh, need yeah, to move that's away exactly from, right. how, how do we need to move away from that? Uh, and how, uh, and then I have a follow-up question on that for all the people who are on the parapets, which we discussed a little bit with Mike Rogers last week, but, you know, sort of give us, give us this sense on whether you see the mentality and the mindset changing, or is it still sort of, um, you know, still, still kind of crisis to crisis, which is, it still feels that way to me a little bit. Um, I, th I think it's both. I don't, I don't know that the two are mutually exclusive and um, sometimes it can feel like a really proactive and innovative space. I mean, there's a lot of really, really intelligent and talented people who are working on solving these problems. And then other days it feels a bit like whack-a-mole, you know, where you think you're focused on the right thing and you're channeling the resources in the right thing. And 
then you, you find another vulnerability that pops up in an area that was in one of your blind spots. And that is where leveraging these partnerships is really going to be key because moving at the speed of commercial business is a lot different than moving at the speed of government. And it's also really important to consider that bad actors are not differentiating the same way that we do. So they're consistently prodding the system and trying to find vulnerabilities, whether they fall on the public or private sector line. And they're after the data. So the, the more valuable the data or the more, more vulnerable the data is, the more attractive it becomes in, an, in a breach or in an attack. You know, one of the questions that we've been discussing uh, on the program is, you know, we have been shields up and folks are on those uh, parapets uh, defending. Uh, but then there's also weariness that accompanies that, right? And, and the attacker can bide their time and wait for the defenders to sort of weaken, uh, right? Because we don't have enough people in the system. And obviously, you know, you want to do this through technology and work smart and not just work harder. Uh, but ultimately, we're trying to work smart, but we're also working harder, right? From, from your perspective, is this dynamic changing? Um, and are, are we defending as smartly as we can? And do we have enough energy to keep defending at this pace and rate against an adversary that is very committed and is willing to wait and has shown time and again their willingness to attack us? I mean, there's a lot of questions in there. So um, as far as the weariness goes, of course, you know, it's going to be exhausting at times, but there's power in numbers, which is why these partnerships are really important. So it allows the folks who are maybe growing a little bit more weary or have exhausted all of their um, resources to lean on the folks that haven't leveraged, you know, what they've got in their in their armory. Um, at the same time, when you're talking about a bad actor who is persistent and willing to wait us out, I mean, what the alternative is just giving up, and that's never going to be an option for us. So, you know, of course we're going to stay vigilant. Of course we're going to continue to try to leverage uh, smarter solutions, more aggressive, more proactive solutions. Um, because this is, there's no doubt that this is the next battle space. And I think that that is why you're seeing government prioritize it in this way. You know, I'm, just the way that the government involvement has evolved since last year, where it was a spoken priority without a lot of directive into how to execute this and how to put it at center stage. And now what you're seeing is um, creation of, like I said, these cross-functional uh, these cross-functional teams and bringing the head of the U.S. Cyber Command to the table and having these conversations with folks who really keenly understand the cyber environment, um, what it's going to take in order to make it more secure, and then, of course, how to, how to allocate the funding. You know, there's a lot of people who really want to make this happen. They want to make it a reality, uh, but they don't have the funding to accomplish that. So that's, that's another important facet of these discussions. And, and uh, very, very last question, how, you know, we, we have been improving public-private partnerships over a long period of, of, of time. And sometimes uh, it's easier, I think, as you've pointed out, right, to, to look at the glasses half full as opposed to half empty, right? That this is something that is improving and it's improving uh, rapidly. You know, you've been at this game uh, for a while. I'm not trying at all to try, uh, date you. Um, are you seeing progress? Uh, and is the, is the pace and the speed and the earnestness of wanting to improve this relationship, something that you're palpably seeing? And, and how are we doing if you were going to grade us uh, in the performance so far, right? I mean, how, how much farther do we have to go to sort of get there? Well, I don't know that I could issue a grade. Um, I don't think that we're by any means finished, right? So this is not a finished project. It, it is definitely a work in progress. And I am really, really optimistic about the space. I think the more collaborative the environment, the more creative the solutions are, uh, the more thought leadership you're seeing and people really weighing in and discussing their past experiences 
Um, you know, there's a commitment to strong partnerships that we haven't really seen in the past and breaking down some of those not quite adversarial, but uh, not addressing the competing priorities of public and private sector. Um, we're bringing those to, to light now in a way that's trying to make sure that everybody wins and that we have a nice solution that, that works and is securing our more uh, vulnerable data sets and our more vulnerable partners. So I, I really think that the way that it's been emphasized, like I said, just over the last year, it's going to continue to grow. And um, I think that I'm not the only one who's saying the glass is half full. You're seeing that that driving a lot of the conversations. And any breach or any attack um, is going to be disheartening. But, you know, you saw it with um, Ukraine and, and Russia, the way that they were able to sort of crowdsource solutions and, and start, you know, citizens were getting in and um, uh, standing up against cyber attacks and things that are being brought about by Russia in a way that you have not seen before and organizing on, you know, back channel communications and social platforms like Reddit. And, and those are, that's all new. That's all innovative in this space. So like I said, having everybody focused on the same goals and having everyone with their shoulder against the sled here is, is really going to be a difference. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and thanks very much for your role, uh, Andrea, in putting uh, the shoulder uh, to the sled and pushing it out of the mud. I don't know what other analogy to use. Thank you so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I can't wait to come back. I always love talking with you. And joining us now is Emma Schroeder, who is the assistant director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council think tank uh, that yesterday hosted the EU-US Defense uh, Forum, or I should say Defense and Future Forum uh, on uh, topics uh, involving the United States and the European Union. Absolutely great uh, meeting and terrific to have it back uh, in person. Uh, Emma, thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Uh, and great to have you uh, back uh, on the on the program. And I understand you were a little bit under the weather for anybody who was looking at the schedule, was expecting you to participate in one of the panel uh, discussions, but thought it would be a great opportunity to have you uh, come on uh, and to talk a little bit about uh, U.S. Uh, and European uh, cyber uh, cooperation. And what was really amazing about the event, uh, Emma, was um, how in sync American and EU officials were at virtually every uh, level, uh, whether it was on uh, Indo-Pacific, whether it was on uh, Russia. Uh, talk to us a little bit about cyber cooperation between the United States uh, and the EU, especially at a time when um, both the United States and Europe are supporting Ukraine in its war uh, against, uh, against Russian aggression, uh, and how the United States and Europe are being targeted in turn by Russia. Yeah, thanks. Um, so as you said, we kind of have the the overarching what are the EU and the United States cooperating on in cyberspace on a kind of an ongoing basis, as well as these the ongoing response to the war in Ukraine um, and aid going to that country to support it against the Russian invasion. Um, so on the kind of larger efforts against um, Russian aggression and operations and actions in cyberspace. There are a lot of areas that we see for cooperation, both that are already occurring and potential for cooperation as well. Um, you know, we have a, a more or less shared vision for what we want to see the cyber domain, cyberspace to look like. You know, we have this idea of an open, free, and interoperable internet that is you know, open and accessible for all. Uh, and this is a different conception than what some other countries, more authoritarian governments have. And so I really think that when we're discussing 
countering adversarial behavior in this domain, that that point should be at the forefront of not just our, why are we countering and how are we countering that adversarial behavior, but what are we trying to create? Um, and this is both in the domain and also through the domain. So how do our actions when we engage with our adversaries contribute to our greater vision for what we want this domain to look and act and feel like in the future? Um, and I think this also gets into some of the conversations around um, warfare and conflict that includes a cyber dimension. You know, we have always used in warfare and in conflict every tool, every, you know, every piece at your disposal. You know, if you're going to involve, get involved in a war, if you are attacked, if you are attacking, you're going to reach for every tool that you can. And so cyber is naturally going to be one of those. And so it makes sense that we are, are looking at cyber in that way of, you know, how are we pulling this into larger campaigns of behavior, you know, specifically not just, you know, what can cyber tools do, but how can cyber tools specifically support the lines of effort that we're already doing in terms of, you know, aiding Ukraine and for Ukraine, you know, trying to disrupt and, and uh, hinder the Russian invasion. So it's a question of where, where is cyber the best tool to get what done? Um, which I think, you know, I know not to, you know, keep linking this into, into separate things, but into that conversation that, that has been had a lot since the invasion of, you know, why aren't we seeing more cyber? And I think, you know, implicit in that is why aren't we seeing cyber to blow stuff up? Um, and that, that, that connects back to what I was saying about, you know, we, you need to use the best tool for the situation and, Cyber is not the best tool if you want to blow things up. Right. There are ways to do that. It's very complicated, takes you know, a time to set it up, sophisticated tools, you need access. And if you're, if you're Russia and you're talking about someplace in Ukraine, you can just drop a bomb and that's a lot easier. I want to sort of pull on that a little bit, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we, we had Admiral uh, Mike Rogers on uh, last week. We talked a little bit uh, about um, Russian operations. And, and he said, right, they're very good at set piece operations that they, uh, you know, in conducting surveillance and penetration, we've sort of seen them not be as good as on the fly ball uh, that's uh, required. But Brad Smith, uh, the Microsoft uh, president uh, yesterday said, look, you know, the, there are, the, the Russians still are being very, very active and 30% of the time sort of succeeding in their, uh, in their uh, intrusions. From, from your standpoint, looking at this as a researcher, Right. Where are we doing better? Where are we not doing as well? Because there is this perception, uh, as we heard at the, t at the top of the program, right, that, you know, everybody is stepping up in, in, in terms of being able to, uh, you know, defend better from, from your perspective. Where are we doing well? Where do we need to be doing? Not just from the standpoint of the United States, but among our allies uh, and, and partners, whether they're in, in Europe or in Asia. Yeah, so I haven't had a chance to read through the entire um, Microsoft report that just came out yesterday, but you know I've read um, bits and pieces of it and some coverage of it, and you know it definitely fills in that blank of you know again that conversation of why aren't we seeing more cyber? A lot of discussion in the community was saying, well, th there probably is, but again, it's not what some may have expected of that you know 
kind of shock and awe cyber, which is just not really what, what it's good for. Um, and so when we talk about all of these, you know, Russian offensive cyber operations that we have seen, I think it's also important to kind of separate that out a little bit. So, you know, we have this, there's destructive cyber operations and there's also cyber operations that are more um, like espionage in nature. So they are collecting information and even, you know, moving a step beyond um, into kind of stealing and destroying data. But we definitely want to make sure that when we discuss this, you know, there's that ongoing tension of, of kind of wanting to call things cyber war, which has, you know, a lot of, of baggage around it. So when we talk about what Russia is doing in this domain, again, it is very much in support of its mission. So they are focusing a lot on trying to get information. If you look at the, you know, the operations that were conducted. So for example, um, at the beginning, you know, close to the, the invasion date, not only were there, you know, DDoS attacks against, or operations, I should say, um, against kind of government websites and, and, and databases, there was also um, cyber operations against internet service providers in Ukraine. Um, there were several of them against the service provider Troilin. Troilin, sorry, not sure how to pronounce that. Um, right. And and this caused you know thousands of Ukrainians to lose connection to the internet for a period of time. Um, these were limited in duration, but they really evidence the the Russian intention to remove Ukrainians from a free and open internet. Um, and this also is, is paralleled and, and supported by kinetic attacks on internet infrastructure in Ukraine, as well as the transfer of, of the internet traffic itself to Russian networks away from Ukrainian networks that we're seeing in parts of Eastern Ukraine. Um, and we can also look at the, the targeting of the telecommunications company Viasat, um, which was, you know, took down uh, or disrupted operations of, of the satellite, which was intended to disrupt Ukrainian command and control and in inhibit the ability of Ukrainian forces to coordinate their defensive efforts. Um, so I think when we look at even just these, these cases, we can see that there are, there are times in which cyber is used in support of military operations. Um, it's not going to be, you know, largely in a destructive capacity. It's going to be helping give as much advantage as possible to these forces. Um, but I think, you know, interestingly, a lot of, of the service is, is around this mission of trying to disconnect the Ukrainian people. I think that that almost sums up a lot of, of Russian priorities. You know, they want to separate Ukraine from Western Europe, from the West in general, punish them for, for this, this shift westward that they've been making they want to you know it, it appears that the goal and I, I probably don't need to say it appears they outright stated the goal was to remove the current government from power and now they are attempting to remove ukrainians ability to access the internet um and so we have this aspect of you know what is cyber really good at it's good it, it you know centers information at its heart and so these cyber operations that we're seeing Russia conduct really do center that to, to a, a large degree. And when we look at the kind of numbers of operations 
that Russia has conducted both, you know, within Ukraine and also elsewhere, that is, is often a large part of those operations. We've got a couple of minutes uh, left, and I want to ask you about uh, information disinformation, right? Uh, because it does operate in uh, the cyber domain and in panel discussion after panel discussion was how effective Russians have been in using information, uh, disinformation, misinformation uh, to undermine support, uh, even in NATO countries of the operation, right? Uh, that, um, you know, sizable percentages of some Eastern European countries believe uh, the Russian myth that the Ukrainians were the ones preparing to attack Russia. And so Russia had no choice uh, and, it, and it had to attack. Obviously, we uh, heard from um, the EU's vice president for values and transparency, Vera Jourova. Uh, who you know made the case that it's it's important to have a new generation of laws that balance free speech uh, and ensures there's free speech and free expression of opinion and prevent disinformation and that's at the heart of uh, uh, the new uh, EU uh, laws that are going to be coming into effect that govern social media platforms and I know that Congress is is debating something very similar. Uh, Emma, what, what's the key from your standpoint is researching this because you guys also have the DFR lab uh, there at the Atlantic Council, which has been doing some tremendous work on this. Sort of really briefly, what's, what's the emerging consensus on how to balance freedom of speech without then turning disinformation into a very, very powerful weapon, a strategic weapon, in fact? One of the things we talk about when we talk about free speech is Free speech does not mean freedom from from consequences, um, and I think that's you know you, like you can't shout fire in a in a you know crowded theater things like that. Um, so one of the things we talk about when we think about what do we mean by an open and free um, internet, and one of the things is it has to have a level of of trust and security within it, and so there is always going to be an element of you know, if you are threatening harm, if you are trying to enact harm, you're not free to do those things. And I think, you know, everyone would kind of agree on that. Um, And when we talk specifically about information and sharing, you know, misinformation and disinformation, one of the things that we get into pretty quickly is, is the aspect of the internet, which is that it's largely owned and operated by the private sector. And so they obviously operate under different rules and they operate under different incentives. And so we have these almost you know, quasi public squares but they are owned and operated by the private sector. And they are also largely run by algorithms that kind of are, are very attuned to the types of interactions and behaviors that disinformation and misinformation can really just tap into. You know, it's, it's easy to see, you know, a 15 second clip of something and it sticks in your head a little bit more. It's, it's easier to access than would be, you know, a long treatment on a topic. If there's a, you know, funny video or, you know, a video shared by somebody that you trust that gives kind of a quip and maybe you don't fully process it, but it's going to kind of, dig in, it's going to be a thing that you think back to, maybe you won't even remember where, where you saw it from. Um, and I think that, you know, there's that aspect of, you know, the governments need to work more with the private sector, especially on this, it, this, this area on how do, how to private the company itself help out with making sure that these algorithms are not 
kind of preferencing these these types of misinformation and disinformation. Um, but I think also, you know, to kind of um, a separate point, we we talk a lot about science and technology education in this country. And absolutely, this is something that we need to focus on and, and bolster and build. But as somebody who largely studied history um, through my education, I look at this issue and partially I say, you know, this is something that I had to learn a lot in all of my classes, looking at sourcing, tracing that, that source back to, okay, I, I see this one citation who cites this person and actually it's, it's circular, it doesn't go anywhere or it leads back to somebody who is unreliable. And so I think that that element of, you know, we're going to try to make the problem better systemically, see if there are, you know, kind of technical solutions to lessening this issue, but also at the same time, making sure that we are, are communicating and helping our own people to see and understand this issue is going to be really crucial moving forward. Um, and um, in uh, very briefly, right, one of the things uh, that uh, Jerova also said was, um, that companies should not profit from disinformation and from division. And the accusation of social media companies is you guys have been profiting from doing that. Even if you deplatform people, it's not a solve to the fundamental problem of disinformation getting out there and propagating, as you said. Um, you know, it, it, briefly, is this possible if the United States has one set of regulations on it that are completely different than what the EU uh, is doing? Right, because one is a market of about 500 million people, the other mark is a market of 330 million people. Is this sort of doable if the two leading democratic blocks in the world, or nations in the world, an area in the world, are on different pages when it comes to this? Yeah, I think that's that's a really important conversation. Of you know, while the U.S. and the EU have a lot of overlap in what we see as kind of issues, opportunities, and, and again, vision for the cyber domain, there are issues in which, you know, we have different priorities and obviously different laws as well. And having some of those, those tougher conversations, I think, is going to be really important because we do have these private sector companies that, you know, have the, the GDP of small, small countries, and they have access to millions of populations, you know, around the globe. And so we have this really interesting relationship between states and some of these technology companies um, that, you know, if states are not on the same page, you know, if we and the EU are not on the same page with these issues, it's going to be much harder to kind of pull in that direction. That doesn't mean that we need to have, you know, all of the laws need to be exactly the same um, or anything like that, but it's kind of the, you need to be pulling in the same direction and have, have that conversation. And we, we actually have a, um, some ongoing projects uh, from the Cyber Statecraft Initiative, the Buying Down Risk series, I know is doing some work in this area. Um, and I think some upcoming work as well is looking into some of these um, kind of data regulation and, and privacy um, laws that we have. So it's, it's definitely something that we need to tackle. It's, it's a complicated issue, like almost everything in this domain. Um, but working together with our allies, you know, it, it, it's going to be hard sometimes, but obviously well worth it. And we can do so much more working together. Emma. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again. Thank you so much for having me.